This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Our Father in heaven, we do need you today for every part of our life. And here we are, scattered in all these different places, together in small groups, and we all just say to you, we need you in our life. We need you for our burdens. We need you for our forgiveness. We need you for our salvation. We need you in our mind and in our words, in our body, in our heart, in our faith. So we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, our needs will be met today as we contemplate your greatness and we think about your presence with us. We need you because of our sicknesses. We need you because of what's happening in our society. We need you for every part of our life. So would you please meet with us today? Let us hear your voice now as we open your word and speak to us things that you want us to know with certainty and increase our faith as we hear the word of God. We pray in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. All right, so great to be together and sing these worshipful songs together, and now to open the Word of God. So if you have your Bible, let's open to the book of Acts again, chapter 17. We're going to be the second part of Acts chapter 17. Last week, we heard from Thomas, and I'll tell you, the first time I heard that message, it's like it's been in my mind ever since, the things that Thomas said. Um, He talked to us about reaching a group of people and then opening the Bible to them. And today we follow Paul as he arrives in the city of Athens and he's going to talk to a new group of people. And all of these episodes in the book of Acts just underscore that when the word of God goes out, there's a context in which it goes out. When Paul addressed a new group of people, he had to know who it was he was speaking to. And in Acts chapter 17, in the city of Athens, he has left most of his entourage behind, and they're going to join him later, but he's going to unfold a message to the Greeks. This new audience needs the message that Paul gives, particularly here. So here's what I'm praying today. As we study this, I hope that we will see three things. One is the problems that Paul faced as he spoke to a new crowd. And then the God that he proclaims. And thirdly, the responses that he got to the message. So first, let's look at the problems he faced. I'm going to begin reading in Acts 17, uh, starting at verse 16. And I'm only going to read through part of the passage first. But you read along. Now while Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and the others, he was waiting in Athens, and his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what is this babbler wanting to say to us? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, 
may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time with nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In that introduction, we get a sense of what Paul's experiencing as he walks through the city of Athens and observes all of the idols that are all throughout the city. And he's provoked. And he faces a couple of problems. And those problems are boiling up inside of him. The word provoked actually means furious. It's a very strong word. He's feeling very upset about a couple things that are happening in the city. And the first of the things that I would observe of Paul's experience in Athens is that he is faced now with an idolatrous culture completely devoid of biblical literacy. He's in a place where there are all kinds of attentions to numerous idols throughout the city and he describes them as being everywhere. So it's a very pluralistic society and in many ways it's a syncretistic world because all of these idols were meant to cover the bases of anyone who was God-fearing. You'd have an idol to this God and to that God and to this God. And then there's even one there called the unknown God. And it was just a means of covering your bases as a religious seeker, make sure that I could do something for that God so that he would cover my bases. An idolatrous culture And you'll notice that when Paul begins to speak and give his sermon here, he never uses any Hebrew scripture. And that's because of where he is. There's no citation because they wouldn't have known what Paul knew as a Jew. They wouldn't have known the Old Testament scriptures or any of those things that Paul would have assumed in his understanding of who is God. Can you imagine, so if you were in Athens and you were going to go on a trip on a boat, um, well, before you got out on the sea, you'd want to do something for Neptune. So you might burn a little incense or say a little prayer to Neptune before you got out on the sea because the sea god would have to watch over you. Or Zeus, a powerful God, you, you might do something for Zeus, or if you wanted a little bit of love, you might go to Aphrodite and offer a little sacrifice for her. And that was just the culture of an idolatrous world that brought all these beliefs together to cover their base. Wish we'd pass through that, but I've met Christians who say, oh, I have Jesus in my life. I want a little bit of Jesus, but I always check my horoscope every week anyway. What? What is that? That that doesn't make sense. Why would you turn to the stars if you have Jesus and you really know who he is? So Paul's first problem as he enters Athens is that this is a city that's idolatrous. It's totally devoid of biblical literacy. 
Now, they wouldn't know Moses from Moses Malone. They wouldn't know that the Bible would eventually have uh, the Old Testament prophecies in history and poetry. Might not have known that. And so Paul doesn't assume any of that. And similarly, we can't assume in our day when we talk to people that most people today know the things that we might have assumed just a few years ago. But you know what? Where there is no biblical data in the life of person, um, whether it's Athens or today, what's there in its place is not a blank slate. People fill that illiteracy of biblical truth with other truth. And that's the second problem that the Apostle Paul faced in Athens. Not only was it an uh, idolatrous culture without any knowledge of the scripture, but it was a very pluralistic uh, society and it had competing worldviews to the worldview that the Apostle Paul um, subscribed to. So verse 19 says, uh, verse 18, and some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul and some said, what is this babbler trying to say? So you hear these two particular philosophical groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans and the Stoics were the two leading philosophical thinkers of the day, and they comprised the worldview to which most Athenians would have subscribed. Um, The Epicureans believed that pleasure and the avoidance of all pain was the highest value in life and the highest goal of mankind, pleasure at all costs. In a more measured way, the Stoics believed that self-mastery was the highest human virtue, and it was the real purpose of life. And so these were competing worldviews that really contradicted Paul's view of the world as a follower of Christ. One of my favorite authors, R.C. Sproul, has written a bit of a description between these two philosophical worldviews of that day. R.C. Sproul said, the Epicureans were radical hedonists. Hedonism is defined by the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. The Epicureans would have banquets gorging themselves with food and then induce themselves to vomit so they could eat more food. And they would drink until they were stumbling drunk, and then they would do the same thing. Expel that and then drink some more. And they engaged in orgies with unlimited sex to get as much pleasure as they could possibly endure. Sproul continues. But soon, Epicureans discovered what has been called the hedonistic paradox. The truth that If your desires are not met, you're frustrated. And if they are met, you become bored. So very few Epicureans ended up satisfied with that lifestyle. And that's why the Stoics came up with a calculus, as it was, uh, to balance the ledger. And they said you must have the right amount of gluttony and the right amount of drinking and the right amount of sexual activity so that you can avoid the clutches of the hedonistic paradox, end quote. So one's more measured, but still get all you can, 
and the other is just get all you can. And those were the competing worldviews of the day. And you know what? Worldviews are real. How do you make sense of the world? A worldview actually answers the question, who am I? Why am I here? Where's meaning in life? Where am I heading? What's the end of the world going to look like? And both the Epicureans and the Stoics sought to make sense out of the world, the very meaning of life, how to have a happy life. And so it's no surprise that when Paul's in Athens, he's confronted by these two worldviews. And they compete with the Christian worldview. Now, those are the first two problems. The last problem that Paul confronted is in that phrase in uh, verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time with nothing else except telling and hearing something new. There was a love of novelty. And so if something was uh, in vogue last year, that's so... 2019. It's so passe. And they wanted to hear something new. And I, I think about our world today. We want something novel. We want a worldview of pleasure. And there's an absence of a knowledge of what the Bible actually says. So when I listen to Paul meeting people in Athens, I think th this is a very contemporary message. The, the problems he confronted are the very problems that we face today. And therefore, when I read Paul's response, I want to listen really carefully. And so he walks about the city of Athens and he says to them that you have an idol here that's called to the unknown God. And I want to explain to you who that God is. The one you worship in ignorance and you just want to cover your bases. I want to unfold to you who that God truly is. And so for the rest of the chapter, mostly, Paul begins to explain a very robust view of the God he worships who dwarfs all of the other small g gods. So let's pick it up. And we want to look at the God he proclaims. And we'll do that beginning uh, in verse 24. Here's the God. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of the heaven and the earth. Let's just stop there. Don't you look at those words on your screen. The God who created the world and made everything in it, the Lord of the heaven and the earth. What's Paul saying? He's attributing what I, I want you to take note of, four or five or six things about God that set him apart from every other of these idol deities. He's the God of all creation. Everything in the world he created. Paul is saying there is a creator God who created everything. It would have been a bit of an insult to say, okay, so what? He created Neptune, Zeus, all the other gods. And Paul's saying, yeah, he created everything that there is. And he is secondly the sovereign ruler over all, all the heavens and all the earth. And in this way, Paul is simply in a philosophical way saying there is a God where everything begins. He is the beginning, the creator of everything that exists. In the beginning, God was. And everything that is created was made by him. And Colossians says he sustains everything by the word of his power. What Paul's unfolding are two attributes about 
God. He's a creator and he's a sustainer. He's the sovereign Lord over all. Thirdly, notice what he says in the second uh, part of verse 24. He does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We'll stop there. Look at those words. What's Paul saying here? This creator God who is Lord and sovereign over all has two other distinct qualities about him that set him apart from all the other deities. Namely, he doesn't need humans to prop him up or give him acknowledgement. He doesn't live in a place that's made by human hands. In these words, Paul is describing a quality to God that he is self-sufficient and self-existent. He does not need humans to give him anything that would add to his quality of life and existence in and of himself. It was an old theological word that theologians used to use, and it's the, because of its complexity, we don't use it that much anymore, but we would say this was the aseity of God. The aseity of God is the quality or state of his being absolutely self-derived and self-originated. It just simply said that God has in and of himself absolute self-sufficiency and independence and autonomy. So with the words that he says, you know, God doesn't need anything from humans. He exists in a happy experience in and of himself, feeling quite apart from any human contribution to himself, fully complete in and of himself. You let that sink in. God is God. There is no one like him. He dwells in a category, Paul is saying, all by himself. We say the, the old word kadosh, it's a Hebrew word that means holy. God dwells in a holy category all by himself. There's no one like him. I am the Lord. There is none other, he said of himself. What Paul is saying must have blown the minds of these listeners who heard that God dwells in a category beyond us. Think about that. We, we could label all of those. He's creator, he's sovereign ruler, he's self-existent, he is self-sufficient, he doesn't need anything to be happier in any way. We say that of God, he is transcendent. He is beyond us. He exists in another world in another category all by himself. Does your view of God have him there? We often want to bring God to our level and say he's our friend. That's the glorious thing that in fact he is. But we can't divorce his divine qualities as being so otherworldly, one of a kind in quality as Paul is describing here. He's transcendent. The next verse goes on though, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined and allowed their periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God created the world. Where does man fit in to this worldview, Paul? Well, God created man, and he moves from the 
ontology of God himself, what is God like, to what is man like. And man's created by God, created in his image. And God knows about man and he knows where he lives and he knows his needs and he knows everything about the human condition. Paul's describing that the God who created the world also created man and set him in the place that he is. He goes on further to say, um, he set their boundaries, uh, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward God and find him. He said God actually exists in heaven, <coughs> excuse me, but he wants to be in relationship with man. He wants man to find him and to seek him. And God wants to be seen and found by man as transcendent is, as he is. He's also near. He's close to us. And he continues there in verse 27, yet he actually is not far from each one of us. And then he quotes some of the familiar lines of the day. Listen to this one. In him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul is making the point that as great as God is beyond us, so he's near and he created us to long for him and to know that in him we live, we move, we have our being. That is one of the most profound philosophical statements in all the Bible. And in it, Paul is saying something that would have exploded the worldviews that we just discussed. You cannot have a cohesive worldview that holds together all the meaning of life and the understanding of who I am and where I'm going and where is the world moving if it is devoid of the almighty, all-knowing, self-existent creator God. It's in God that we live and move and have our being. You can't just live for pleasure devoid of knowing God it's God that must be a part of the worldview that's a profound statement and Paul is bringing his argument from the transcendence of God to his nearness to us and then if God's involved in human existence how are humans doing and he confronts that in the next verse in verse um, 29 being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed in the art and imagination of man. Oh, what's he just done? He's just confronted their sin of idolatry. We ought not do that. We ought not take images of God and make them out of stone or gold or silver and say, oh, well, that's what I think God is, so that's what I'm going to worship. Paul moves from God's presence in every human being to every human being's tendency to create idols and worship them instead of the one true God. We ought not do that. And suddenly he calls on the reality of the sinful idolatry of every human heart. You see where he's going? This sermon, without any Old Testament scripture woven in, is a philosophical explanation of the existence and character of God, the reality of human existence because of God, the failure of humans to worship the one true God, and then 
the culmination and the moving of history to its end, which also is a necessary answer to a cohesive worldview, where is history going? And he takes that up in the next verse. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So what should I do about my false worship, my idolatrous life, the fact that I've given myself to pleasure or to self-mastery or to money or to any other idolatrous thing? What should I do? Well, God is in time now calling everyone to repent of their sins because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. No, now he's just wrapped up all of human history to that point. He's simply saying, we've all turned away to idols. It's time to repent. God is merciful to extend the opportunity to repent. But you should know that because he allowed the crucifixion of Christ, but he raised him from the dead. He has given to Christ all authority to be judge over all the world, and he's fixed a day in the future which will culminate all of human history. This is where history's moving. To the day, then the one true judge will stand over all the world and be the faithful judge. Because he raised him from the dead. Do you see the sweep of all that, where he's going? I love what Paul has done here. It ends in the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus and the need to repent of every sin to this one before whom we all will stand. That's the God. So you could add redeemer to our God. You could add rightful judge to our God creator, sovereign ruler, self-sufficient, self-existent, transcendent, near, offering salvation, the redeemer and the judge. You pick out the things about God that you learn in this sermon and you suddenly have a picture of the great God we worship apart from which we can't have a worldview that's satisfying. And that's what Paul's saying. What's the response? There's always a response. Whenever the the message of the gospel is preached, there will be a response. And the response is this. Now, when they heard it, especially of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear about this again from you. So Paul went out from their midst, just as some men joined him, and believed And among them, some are named. There's three responses. There's mockery. There's ongoing curiosity. I need to know more about this. So I'm going to start searching it out. And there's a response that some said, I I believe. These gods that I've been looking at all through the city are unsatisfying. And I am empty without the one true God. And they turn their lives over to Jesus. It is a beautiful picture of another advance of the gospel. And I just want to say to you, I wonder what it is we could take away this week as we get ready to move into small groups. Here's, here's a couple things I would want you to take away for sure. Maybe talk about these things. 
You know, what I learned from Paul in this episode is that when we share our faith with others in our present biblically illiterate society and world, people who don't have the benefit of many things that we might have assumed 10, 20, 30 years ago, we may need to tell a fuller sweep of the story of the Bible before we get to the cross. Who is God? Who are we? What is sin? Um, What has God done there? Um, We might have assumed other things that simply aren't true, aren't believed today, and aren't known today. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say to sort of take away is that a cohesive, livable worldview begins with a robust theology and view of who God is. He said, I am the Lord and there is no other. The more you know about God, the greater your understanding will be of your present circumstances. That there is a God who is self-sufficient, who, who doesn't need me to fire up incense in order for him to be happier. He's happy in and of himself, and he's made his happiness known through his love and grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. I, I wonder how greater our knowledge of God could be, and then knowing him more deeply in our own study, as last week we heard by the Bereans, we could have a more robust understanding of who God is. Third, in a pluralistic world of idols that we live in today, the gospel proclaims the exclusive sufficiency of Christ's salvation. Let me say that again. Even in a pluralistic world of idolatry and many worldviews, the gospel of Jesus proclaims the exclusive sufficiency of Christ to save. And that is a worldview clash that all of us have to prepare ourselves for in order to share the gospel. It's a non-negotiable truth that in the midst of all of this worship of other deities, Paul declares that God has fixed the one redeemer who gave himself and will judge the world as Jesus Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other name given among men by which we must be saved. And maybe the last thing to take away is just to remember this. Whenever we share the gospel, the results will always be mixed. But the results are always in God's hands. He's the one who opens the heart. He's the one who takes this beautiful message of the gospel and applies it wherever he desires. So as you get ready to move into your small group this morning, your home church, and talk about some of the things that you've learned, I want you to think about what it's like to be in our world and to be as bold as Paul and And remember, what what would it take to have a greater vision and to know more fully, increasingly, our great God? That's what I pray for you this week, that God will help us as we apply some of these things in our world today. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to study these great truths. Thank you that we've had examples in our lives who have preceded us and and preached in ways that we could learn from and and then model in our life. Thank you for the way Paul unfolds the storyline of the Bible, of creation and mankind and the reality of sin and the 
gift of redemption. Lord, I pray that you will just fix our hearts to know some of these truths more deeply and then to be able to communicate them. I pray for every home church now as we meet together. May your Holy Spirit be on us to learn these things in a deeper way. Meet with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.